One of the most important things is make the reader feel like they're living the experience in the book. Where does that symbolism come from? They wrote down the key elements of A Gentleman in Moscow in a period of about an hour and a half. Wow. I plan, design, and outline before I start writing. I can then reduce the interaction of the analytical side of my brain, and that's where you start to get poetic surprises. I'm very interested in this feedback loop of you describe something, then you see more, you see more, and then you describe something. This iterative process, beginning to build in the layers of the language to suggest a bigger truth. That's a beautiful answer. I gotta say, I'm really excited for this conversation because I feel like more than anyone I've ever interviewed, the number of things that I have to learn from you is so big. And the place I want to start is with your ability to describe things in detail and your vocabulary, especially with French words, you know, the maitre d'air, you know, the au revoir, like whatever, I'm just making stuff up. But your French vocabulary in particular is really rich. Certain Aspects of the French language enter American and English usage over time and, uh, and that you encounter it over time. And so you absorb it in one way or another. Certain Italian words, certain German words, certain Spanish words become a part of the broader, uh, the broader vocabulary that surrounds you. So then you try to make use of your vocabulary from whatever angle you have. You know? And I, I guess a, bit, the, a, a way of thinking about it, too, is that um, you know, baseball has its own vocabulary. Uh, the city streets have a vocabulary. Finance has a vocabulary. Uh, there's ethnic vocabularies, Italian-American or, or Hispanic-American or what have you. Uh, and, um, and so as a, a writer, you're, you become very interested, I think, in general in these vocabularies. You, and you, you pick up the words that strike you as interesting or unusual or what a cool way to put that or, or what a surprising, you know, what a perfect word for that feeling or for that, you know, uh, that to designate that person. So you're, you start to tune your, your ears towards picking up interesting language, including technical language, you know, which is, becomes fascinating or biological language, you know, the, the language of physics. And, and so when you're writing, it's become second nature to constantly be applying different vocabularies to different purposes uh, because you think it will better evoke uh, the situation you're in. In the case of A Gentleman in Moscow, the main character, Count Rostov, is an aristocrat born in Europe in the late 19th century. So it would be v very natural for him to make use of French language in whatever, ever, in whatever form. And in fact... Uh, all of society in Moscow in 1900 spoke French. None of them spoke Russian. I mean, they would knew how to speak, speak Russian, but they never would have spoken Russian to each other. They only spoke French. And so uh, and that would have been true throughout the late 19th century. So it, you, you want to evoke that. Now, I don't speak French, but so you then, as I say, you start to draw on every little bit of French you know and kind of weave it into uh, the language because it sort of helps bring... Uh, into sharpness, the notion of this would be a person who knows these things and has this sensibility. Yeah. Well, what's interesting with that is that there's a aristocratic tenor in that book. Yes. And one of the things with the aristocracy is there's a forbiddenness that when I look at societally, if you're not from that, there's almost a distance that people have. 
And I've noticed that it's only in very particular places where I've really been able to pick up, you know, on on that language. Sometimes I'll go to the Met or when I'm in Paris, I can really pick up on that language, that way of living. But it just seems like there's some intentionality. But then you contrast that with, hey, here's a group of guys on the Lincoln Highway in 1954. That's a totally different language. Yes, that's right. And and again, so that's what you're the training of being a young writer is you're listening to those different kinds of, of voices, but but uh, it's not necessarily the spoken language that you're necess- you know you're you're principally interested in. So uh, I'll get very interested in uh, if I'm writing uh, Lincoln Highway set in 1954. Uh, one of the things that I did in sort of I'm not a research driven guy, uh, but one of the things I did for in advance of writing that book, as I went and read uh, three novels that had all been written uh, around 1954 that were all set in about that time. So Flannery O'Connor's uh, first collection of short stories, uh, A Good Man is Hard to Find. I read um, James Baldwin's first novel, uh, Go Tell It on the Mountain. Uh, I read The Man with a Gray Flannel Suit. And I read uh, Raymond Chandler's Long Goodbye, which is all... Now, what's interesting about those four books is that they're all written within about 12 months of each other and they're 18 months of each other. Most of them are kind of set right at that time. Um, but uh, Go Tell It on the Mountain is, you know, a young black writer writing about Harlem. You know, Raymond Chandler's work, he's it's towards the end of his career, and he's writing a noir set in Los Angeles of the time, having written about crime in Los Angeles for 30 years. Man with a Great Flannel Suit is about the sort of first generation of veterans that came back from the Second World War and became businessmen, mm-hmm. wearing, and that's why it's called that, because it was the guys who rode the train from Connecticut into the city every day, dressed identically, uh, you know, to go and work in Madison Avenue and return home for a martini and while their wife was taking care of the kids. That whole generation was, he really depicted that for the first time, uh, kind of in, in the development of American culture. And then Flannery O'Connor is writing uh, a gothic tales in the South, now, so in this 18-month period, these are four different American classics which have a totally different language about them. Different, they're using a different vocabulary, they're different semantics, they're concerned with different things thematically, but they're all profoundly American, you know, and that's the nature of being in uh, the American melting pot as a culture. So as I say, I read all those books in the years before reading Lincoln Highway because it's sort of a way of, of triggering for me a reminder of some of the different sensibilities of that time. Yeah, you're talking about listening and reading and having an ear for times when people describe something in a way that you've never heard it described that way before. I was just reading your essay on Nighthawks with Hopper and it had that exact thing happen where in the bottom of one of your paragraphs, you were talking about how it describes a the mood was melancholy, but it's not a sad kind of melancholy. And then you use that sentence, and then for the rest of the piece, you talk about how in a city, the solitude, the melancholy is actually nice because it's placed in the context of New York City. And my mental thought was, wow, you've just placed a new emotion in my mind that I didn't know existed. Mm -hmm. And when I think about what I strive to do as a writer, it's that's what it is. When I was in writing education, you know, learning in school and whatnot, I always thought about impressive writing as big words or trying to sound loquacious or this elegant prose. But actually, what I really value is that 
descriptiveness, and that novelty through specificity and a vibrance in the language. And I read that sentence and I was like, that's what that was. As a writer, you, you, you keep returning to this idea of description, and, and, and it's certainly a critical aspect in the broader uh, challenge of writing fiction. But one of the most important things is to make the reader feel like they're living the experience in the book to some degree, that they feel present and, uh, and as a result, become interested in the characters and, con- and connected to the characters. They can see things unfolding. Their, their ideas, uh, their thought processes and, and, fe- and feelings are, uh, are sort of turned on by what they're, what they're reading about. Now, all of that really depends upon making the reader feel present in the moment. Mm-hmm. And so one of the most valuable tools to achieving that in, uh, in effective writing is through description that is sharp enough and concise enough that the reader can see where they are, know where they are, not get bogged down in it, and then begin to sort of themselves move throughout the room and listen to how things unfold. You know, so in the case of a, of a gentleman in Moscow, you know, I know that book is going to take place, you know, whatever, it's almost 30 years inside the hotel. The reader rarely leaves the hotel. So I know it's extremely important when I was writing that, that to lay out the geography of the hotel early, to give people a vivid sense of the key rooms early. Because once I'd done that, then as events unfold, the reader kind of can feel like they're walking through the hotel themselves. Mm-hmm. And uh, now the to do that, though, there has to be that balance. There has to be the balance between it can't, the description can't be so spare that it could be anywhere, um, but nor can it be so specific that I feel like I'm being bogged down in cold, cumbersome descriptions of the space. So you do have to kind of, as you're working through the writing of that description, so adding details, taking details away, is narrow in on the few elements that will really help bring uh, that space vividly to life for the reader. And how do you think about that pacing? What I found when I've done video editing in the past is that my perception of the speed that a video needs to be at is very different in my 50th run through the video as a consumer's perception of where it needs to be in their first run through the video. And over and over, people would say to me, your videos are too fast, your videos are too fast. How do you manage when you're trying to have that felt sense of the pacing of a novel, how do you manage that pacing when you're so in it and so familiar with it? Yeah. Uh, I mean, that, that is a, uh, I mean, that's a whole art form in itself because really what you're asking about is editing. And so, you know, writing and editing are, are two closely interlinked but different skill sets. And uh, the editing process is the ability to go back and take a look at something you've already written. Mm-hmm and try to hear it a little bit differently and hear it, read it as if it's for the first time to gain a sense of, uh, is this slow for me? Like, do I find this section boring? That's never a good sign. Never a good sign. <laughs> right, because if I find it boring on the third read, then the you know, reader is definitely going to run the risk of finding it boring. So, so you do have to kind of train yourself to constantly looking at it a little, cold, a little bit more coldly and find what that right tempo is. I mean, to, you know, you talk about pace or tempo. I mean, the, you know, the same idea it was, is, do I feel as the reader um, compelled to move on? Now, now I, I, I don't want to associate what I just said with a page turner, which, which hmm. is its own art form and is a value. And there's parts of a book that can be page turnish. But, but uh, a page turner in the, in the classical sense is really something where 
really driven by the action, you know. Uh, you know, so uh, Lee Childs writes page turners and turners in his in his Jack Reacher novels, you know, where you're constantly want to know what happens next because there's a new crisis or a new danger or we want to beat up the next guy or whatever it is. And, uh, you know, that's a certain kind of urgency that can exist in, in uh, writing. But as a, as a novelist writing in a literary style, that's not the one you're looking at. So what you need to be creating is a sense of urgency for the reader, which may be without any action at all. Right? It may be that uh, you're drawing the reader in who gets interested in the psychology of the character. And so they want to understand what are they feeling and what are they going to do next. And But even though there's no... There's no action involved, you know, and or what? How is the writer going to put this next? You know, because of the, the 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 phrasing of the sentence is compelling. So there's all kinds of ways that you're trying to make sure that the writing is is drawing the reader forward, and but that may include a willingness to have parts which are slow. Right, right. Tactically, as you're trying to work on the descriptiveness of a sentence or of a paragraph, how does that happen? Is it the kind of thing where you sort of live in it and you're just trying to make it better, make it better, make it better? Or do you find that stepping away from it for maybe a few months, you come back to it, you're like, that's off, that's off, and it instantly comes to mind? All right, well, let's take a step back. So what I do is uh, my novels have always begun with a very simple premise that I have like a sentence where I'm like, oh, yeah, okay, guy lives in a hotel for a long period of time. That's interesting. And if I, that idea kind of grabs hold of me, I'll start to think it out a little bit. And usually, uh, like when I had that notion, uh, which led to a gentleman in Moscow, within the first couple of hours, I know a lot about it. So I started with a guy gets trapped in a hotel for a long period of time. And then right away, I was like, oh, it could be set in Russia. He could be an aristocrat. He could be sentenced to house arrest in a luxury hotel across the street from the Kremlin. Uh, you know, it could span the, from the revolution to the Cold War. So I knew all that very quickly, like in a matter of minutes. Where uh, were you when you had that epiphany? I was in Geneva. And uh, I was in Geneva in a hotel, and that's why I had the epiphany, because I was in a hotel and, and recognized a guy in the lobby from the year before. In the uh, hotel room upstairs, I wrote down the key elements of A Gentleman in Moscow in a period of about an hour and a half. Wow. In the course of the next three days, I wrote the scaffolding for almost all of the key events of the novel. Okay, but then what happens is that uh, if it really grabs me, as it did in that case, I'll start to fill notebooks. And the notebooks, uh, I'll be asking myself, you know, okay, there's going to be this section of scene where the Count's going to meet a young girl. And uh, that's going to be his first friend. She's kind of in the hotel, too. It's going to be in the restaurant. And, uh, okay, so, you know, what... What's going to prompt the meeting? What, what are they actually going to talk about in this first meeting? And, and so in my spare time, I'm just I'm dwelling on that. And uh, I used to do it while I was walking to work, let's say. You know, I'd, I'd be like, oh, yeah, okay, what's going to happen in that scene? And I start to visualize it in greater and greater detail. I can see the restaurant. I can see the girl. I can see them dining. I can see their interaction. So the, the humorous elements of it. I then can start to hear the conversation, start to imagine that in greater detail. I see the food coming. I see the waiter. All these various elements. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and then I, in a notebook, I'll start to write that scene and uh, write it out by hand. Um, now, I don't necessarily, when I'm doing these notebooks, work chronologically from chapter one to the end of the chapter. It's kind of whatever grabs my, whatever I want to think about that day. It's, it's, but I, I now know that there's all these various elements that are going to be, have to be investigated. Mm -hmm. um, and I will do that for a couple of years. So at the end of a couple of years, I'll have a couple of notebooks filled with handwritten uh, descriptions of 
what happens in the book. And only when I know everything that's going to happen in the book and I can visualize it all do I then start writing chapter one. Uh, now, and then I'll write the book over, you know, a year and a half or something like that. And then I go back to the beginning and start to revise it from beginning to end. And I'll do that, you know, two or three times. So I lay all this out because it's an important to inform your, my answer to your question or yeah. to inform your question, which is that, is that I don't walk, I don't sit there with a blank page and not and without a sense of where I'm going and start to try to investigate it as I go. Right. right? Is I am sitting down saying, okay. The chapter is, you know, it's the seventh chapter. This is where they are. This is what's, I know exactly uh, where it's set, what it looks like, who's there, what their backgrounds are, what their personalities are like, what they're going to talk about. I know all that. Mm -hmm. And so then when I'm writing the chapter, it's, I don't have to solve for those kinds of things. Instead, it's really a question of what are the best ways to bring this to life in the language? And what's the best way to craft the poetry of this? Now, I'll point out here, and I was kind of implied this a second ago, but I'm, as I made clear, I'm, I'm an outliner. That's what I am. I plan, design, and outline before I start writing. That can sound like it's very, uh, that can sound very left brain, meaning very analytical, very precise, very organized. Um, the reason that I do that, though, is in order to free up the right side of my brain when I'm in the writing process. Sure. The right side being the more subconscious more dream-oriented, more poetic side of the brain. If I have not figured out all these details, what does the room look like? Who's there? What's their background? What happens? If I haven't figured out that, when I'm writing, that's the part of my brain that has to be in full action, mm -hmm. figuring out, problem-solving all these little elements of the story. Um, and it puts pressure on or dampens the poetic side of the consciousness. So the more I know, the more I can then reduce the interaction of the analytical side of my brain and free up the poetic side to take over. And then that's where you start to get the poetic surprises of unanticipated ways of putting something or, or actually, you know, he's going to look not at this, he's going to look at that. Or she's not going to say this, she's going to say that. You, you start to go with your instincts and, and you start to build out something which is, is both fits the story. It's com completing what you need to in the support in the story, but it's also a more poetic and lively, somehow artistically true version of that events uh, in as you're drafting it. Yeah. Then the the redrafting process is you keep cleaning that to make it sharper and sharper and sharper. Yeah, that's a beautiful answer. That's a beautiful answer. One of the, so 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 then what comes to mind is there's a. There's a short paragraph. I want to say it's two or three sentences early in A Gentleman in Moscow. And I'm laughing because the symbolism is so good. I think that there's the count up in the room. And I want to say it's like the butler comes up. And the language that you use is that the butler must have ran up because the coffee wasn't a single degree right, cooler. Yeah, yeah, right, so yeah. like something like that. Yeah. Does that come out when you're writing? Was that planned? Where does that symbolism come from in a sentence like well, that? Something like that is very often, um, if you look at A Gentleman in Moscow as an example, that book is written in the third person. However, it is not written in the third person omniscient voice. You know, so the third person, uh, person omniscient voice that would be used by Dickens or Tolstoy, Henry James, uh, that's a narrator who knows all. They know what's happened to all the characters in the past. They know what's going to happen to them in the future. You know their inner lives. And is telling you from high above 
These are the course of events. Um, so that book is written in a third person, but one which is not omniscient. It's really more of a third person which is closely attached to the inner consciousness of the count. So it is really, the narrator mostly tells you what the count would see and tells it in a way that is consistent with how the count would feel about it and uh, follows his foibles and makes his mistakes, has his sense of humor, you know, all these kinds of things. That's all built into the narration. So... The reason I lay that out for you is that a lot of the times when you have a detail like that, that's something that's coming out of bringing that voice to life. So meaning that I've begun to understand the count, understand how he thinks, uh, understand sort of uh, what he would care about. Um, I understand sort of sort of the comic aspects of the way that he would describe things. So that's less of a question of how would you describe the coffee arriving in the morning and more of a thing of saying, uh, what would the count notice? And the count would say, oh, you know, there you go. You know, as you say, the, you know, the waiter, he clearly ran up the <laughs> stairs because, because he would care about how hot the coffee was. You know, as someone, because he's constantly talking about things like that, about cuisine, and he's used to being serve promptly, you know, in his life as an aristocrat. <laughs> That's the kind of thing a, an aristocrat would care about, right? Because right. they don't have to care about going to work, right? But, uh, but so, and he, and, but he also, he has a certain enthusiasm in his personality for things like that. And he has great respect for others who do things well. And so all that gets kind of bound into that. You're like, oh yeah, this is perfect. He'll say, you know, he'll be, he'll be really focused on the temperature of the, of the coffee, you know, because that's what suits his personality. So as I say, sometimes you, you I wouldn't have thought to write that passage or describe it in that way. It's really grown out of putting myself in the place of that character. And I would say more broadly than that, that is true of most of, uh, at least 90% of the passages in any of my work which readers will come to me and say, this was the, very moving to me, this passage, or this was, the most, this was the most beautiful passage, I wrote it out, or this was so insightful, you know, that I sent it to my daughter, or I, I read it to my husband, or whatever it is. 90% of the time, when someone comes to me and says this about a passage, it is something which I would never have said in the course of my own life. It wouldn't have occurred to me. Uh, I wouldn't say it to my children. I wouldn't mention it to a friend. What's happened is that I have imagined for a moment that I am this person who I am not, who has a different background and has a different personality. I have then put that person in a situation in which I've never been. And while in that moment, that person with that background, that personality looks around and says, you know, the thing about it is da 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 And usually that comes really fast. And so, you know, like, oh, yeah, bam. And we're done. And usually I'm like, well done, Count. You nailed that. Because that's what it feels like. It feels like I've heard it from this personality in this experience, you know. And so, and that's, of course, uh, that's one of the ideal states to achieve in in narrative writing, you know, which you know, the modern parlance is flow or whatever, but where you get deep enough into it that it is happening for you. You're watching it happen. I got to ask, what do you make of this idea of the crazy artist, the person who can't function and is just horrible to other people around them? You are a well-adjusted guy. <laughs> you, you worked in the finance industry for 21 years. You went to Yale. You've done well in a lot of different places. You're now talking about your writing process. You're very structured. You're organized. You're systematic. You're disciplined. You showed up on time today. You're well-dressed. All these sorts of things. What do you make of that trope? Where does that come from? And... 
if it's a trope that has some truth to it, how have you been able to avoid and resist that? I, you know, I don't, I don't remember. You know, there is, there is a very clear history around that, which others have written about. And I don't remember where it began, but I think it might have been with the, the romanticists or the romantic tradition. But, you know, this sort of notion of the struggling artist kind of became this popular uh, concept in Europe. And then uh, when once that sort of, you know, the, the, uh, the romantic poets writing about broken hearts and about loneliness and about sort of these tragic turns of events and, and sort of the, the suffering artist was, was sort of was bound up in that. And then there were sort of a series of figures in history that kind of magnified that, like Van Gogh, mm-hmm. say, you know, where, oh, yeah, you know, cut off his own ear out of love and then, you know, killed himself. Like, oh, my God, you know. And so that's what it takes to, you know, make a painting like Van Gogh's. And, um, and I, of course, like any of these kinds of tropes, as you say, you could have done a, a scientific assessment of all the great painters of that time and, and – you would you would have found a much more broader distribution of the reality of their lives, right? You know, Matisse and Picasso weren't like you know neither were you know suicide committers, you know. Right. Uh, you know they they li- they lived very well. You know, Picasso was with a new woman every few yeah, years. Yeah, you know, there's always he these was things. a difficult guy to be with, but right. but, but he but he led a, a, a very sure. rich and enjoyable life. Sure. So, so I so I think that there's there's uh, there's different versions of all of these the. There's all kinds of personalities that are feeding into all of the arts, whether it's written or the, uh, the musical, the uh, arts, the, the graphic arts. There are, are people who are, who, are, who are less extreme and less volatile. I, I think, you know, it's also, it's, you know, when you're younger as an artist, it's sort of attractive to imagine. Uh, that's an attractive version of, of the arts, you know, is to be sort of fighting against... Uh, common behavior and fighting against what are the expectations of you fighting against social mores and and uh, and being alone in your in your at, in the attic or the garret you know like in La Bohème you know that's that's makes it all the better you know and um, and I, but but I think for a lot of, of artists you you also kind of grow out of that a little bit you know you realize well actually that's not really necessary and it's always not that's always productive you know that that kind of tortured version of art doesn't isn't always get you to get the work done. It, if I talk to, uh, you know, I've had the luxury of getting to know many of my accomplished peers uh, in in the you know of, of current writers across the United States, and and more often than not, if you ask them how they work, the vast majority work in the morning, you know, and and the vast majority punch the clock. So you know they'll say, I am at my desk at Fill in the blank. You're an 8 to 12 guy, Yeah, right? I'm kind of an 8 to 12 guy. So when it's 8, 8.30, you know, some are 6, some are 9 or 10, you know, whatever. But the vast majority, it's the, it's the first thing they do, and they do it at the same time with, with little uh, variance. And, mm-hmm. um, and, not, and they're, they're because they've learned you know, over decades that um, inspiration is what comes to them when they're at their desk. Right. It's not something that you don't wait to become inspired and then go to your desk because if you do that you will never make any progress you go and you sit down and you do the work and eventually uh, fine things will surface out of that and then your job is to kind of weed out take the fine things and magnify them and take the sloppy stuff and set it aside you know Um, but it ultimately is is time at the desk there's a lot 
out there, obviously, of go follow your passion and just work, work, work. I mean, you worked a job for 20 years and then you wrote a novel that didn't work. And then you wrote Rules of Civility while you're working a full-time job. That comes out and you're like, okay, now I will go become a full-time writer. Would you recommend that path to other novelists or would you tell people, hey, go for it while you're young. That's a good time to do it. I think you got to do that. You got to figure that one out yourself. You okay. know, I think as, as a writer, I mean, because as you say, I, I, I did not, I've been writing since I was a kid and I wrote in college. I wrote in graduate school. I had stories published in the Parish Review in my 20s. And at that point, I could have said, all right, I'm going to now commit myself to this craft. And, uh, and, and maybe I should have, you know, it's, there's no way to know. Right. And, um, and if I had done that, uh, I may have, I've may have written 13 books by now instead of five, you know, or four, whatever it is. Um, so, but I, I ended up down going this other path and, uh, which worked out for me, but, but there's a lot of people who, if they choose not to follow their art now, they're either miserable or they enter a career which is not productive for them or doesn't reward them financially or doesn't satisfy them intellectually mm. and makes them miserable as a person. So, you know, there's a lot of variables in there, you know. Uh, so it's, it's hard to know which is the, the right thing for different people. But, but there's, there's plenty of artists that I know, uh, uh, talented, successful artists who started later. You know, uh, you know, I just mentioned, uh, you know, Lee Childs, and obviously he writes very different kinds of work, but, but I know Lee and because uh, he's writing suspense. But uh, he didn't start writing at all in any respect until his late 30s, I think, because he got fired. He was a television director and he got laid off and he's like, I, I got to find a way to make money. And, you know, and and he went and stumbled into he's like, I, I think I can do this. And um, so, so there's but meanwhile, you know, you have someone like Colson Whitehead, who I'm sure started very young and was doing it very actively in college. And the minute he got out, he was writing, uh, you know, full time, uh, probably. And it was the best he could. Um, so, so, you know, there's different routes and, and, and you have to kind of decide what works for you as the individual. Yeah. You have some experience describing hotel rooms and. One thing that was coming to mind as you begin to think about what you would say is that you could almost think of seeing as people would think about it. They would say, "Okay, so when you're looking, there's like a scale from zero to 100. And as you begin to maybe describe things, you can get to 100 percent. But I would almost argue that a really good description like gets you past what your mind could ever do on its own. And I I feel this when I read David Foster Wallace. Like if my brain, David's Perel's 100, David Foster Wallace's goes to like 500. And I even feel it now when I'm on a boat because I read his cruising out, shipping out essay. I see things that I would have never seen before. And I'm very interested in this feedback loop of you describe something, then you see more, you see more, and then you describe something. Let's say that... You're going to write a story or what have you or a chapter in a book. And, and the scene is a young girl is coming downstairs. Uh, it's approaching dinner time. It's the 1960s, early 1960s. She walks into the kitchen and the mother's uh, you know, making dinner and um, you know, there's music on the radio. And if you said, OK, take some French guy or German writer and say, uh, you don't know, they, haven't, they didn't spend any time in America. We want you to write this story, the scene, and here's, you know, some Life magazines, and here's, you know, Wikipedia pages about America in the 1960s and about suburbia, and, you know, that, that, that. 
then you, what happened is, is you have the risk that the, the writer would write a sentence that says something like, you know, she came down the stairs and went in the kitchen as her mother took uh, the bird's eye uh, frozen peas from the Frigidaire and uh, the Beatles played, you know, love, love me do on the radio. It's just a cliche. It's just like, well, it's all, yeah, and it's these sort of like, okay, we get it. Frozen peas, Frigidaire, the Beatles, it's 1964. Everything I expected. It's the, yeah, so you take a step back and say, well, what, instead of that, instead of putting in these landmarks that tell us where we are and what to expect of it, whatever, what, as you say, what we already expect, ask yourself, well, what would the girl see? So let's say, you know, she's seven years old or something like that, eight years old. When a seven-year-old or eight-year-old comes into the room in 1964 and they see their mother making dinner, you know, what, what would she see? And I, and I think that, like, for me, uh, if you put yourself in that position, the first thing that would really stand out is, uh, is the, the amazing thing that, of what frozen, how frozen peas work, which is that uh, when you take frozen peas out of the freezer and you open them up, you can slide the entire brick of peas out. Like they, they come out like a brick, all bound together. And if this frozen, it was this sort of incredible thing when we were young that you would see your parent do this. And then they would break the, the brick of peas over the pot. And you know, the child would see this. And then the, inevitably, some of the peas would go bouncing across the counter. And you know, the kid would go and, <laughs> and would, you'd try a frozen pea at one point. You know, you'd, without your mother watching, you'd take the frozen pea and, and you're like, oh, that's what a frozen pea tastes like. And some kids would love eating frozen peas. And, and, the, and there's a very specific texture and you know, uh, central experience to eating a frozen pea. Anyway, my point being that this is what the child would see, right? So if you're trying to bring this scene to life from the perspective of the child, you wouldn't mention Frigidaire and Bird's Eye and, you know, the Beatles. It would be this other stuff. Now, we can add, make this more interesting in, in by saying, well, let's say, and it is from the girl's perspective, and this is what she's witnessing. Let's say that uh, earlier that day, uh, her mother has discovered that uh, her husband is cheating on her. And you know, she was doing the laundry, and she finds a, a note in her husband's pocket or you know, and, and realizes that she's being cheated on. And so the mother is feeling uh, vulnerable, you know, angry, uh, frightened, you know, that her husband might leave her, or that the family would be broken up. Um, or alternatively, let's say that on this day, she has cheated on her husband for the first time. Mm -hmm. She goes to take the car to the uh, car wash, and she ends up in the back seat of the car as it's going through the thing with the guy from the car wash. And she's feeling sort of dangerous and sexy and, and excited and alive, you know, and all these things are going on. Now, either way, when the girl walks in the room, she would not know that this has happened. Mm -hmm. Okay. And maybe years from now, later in the book, she's going to discover that that was the day that you fill in the blank. Mom was cheated on her. Mom cheated, whichever one. So when writing that scene, uh, in addition to the child seeing these little elements, like the frozen peas that bring it to life in this vivid way, you'd actually have to write the scene very differently with different language and a different tempo, a different tone, depending upon which of the two things the mother had done earlier that day. Because although it would not be known to the girl, somehow it would have to be evident in the behavior of the mother that the girl senses in the room without even knowing that she senses it. So that as I say, later when you find it out, you could go back and read that section and say, it was all there. 
that's what was going on that night, you know, and that's why this felt a little off or that whatever. So as a writer, then you go, go into this situation of, of, as you say, there's this iterative process of, of trying to observe accurately, trying to write it carefully, but then beginning to build in the layers of the language, your word choice and the poetry of the language to suggest a bigger truth, which is not simply what am I witnessing, but what is the full emotional content of not only the mother, but of everybody in the household and how is it in there in that space? And then how is that kind of suggested by the historical context, you know, that we are middle class or upper middle class or lower middle class, that we're in Ohio versus, a, you know, suburb of Los Angeles versus Baltimore. All that has to be in there too. You know what I mean? So through the writing and the rewriting, you, you try to get as much of that right at the beginning by hearing these elements in advance, by sort of picking the, the tone and the vocabulary that suits this destination that you're going to bring to life. But then you, through the editing and the re-editing, you refine that and make sure that you're getting it closer and closer to where you want it to be. Um, I'll add something here, which is that the way I think about it for myself, and I think that all writers approach these things very differently, but the way I think about it for myself is that uh, I write the first draft for me and for me alone. So in the writing of it, I'm like, whatever I want to imagine, uh, what, whatever whims I have, whatever tickles my fancy, uh, however deep I get into the fascination, whatever I think is hilarious, um, whatever. You know, I can go on at length, you know, as I am doing right now. I just let it all, whatever happens, happens. I don't regulate it in any way. And, uh, but then once the first draft is there in reasonably good shape, I then kind of turn the lens around and I say, okay, having written this for myself, full of, of vanities and digressions and, and investigations and, you know, uh, asides and what diversions, everything. When I, now I want to think about it, not from my perspective, but from a reader's perspective. Mm. And, and this, it's not about, you know, trying to sell books. It's, it's that, Looking at it from the reader's perspective is a way of saying, well, I'm going to complete the, uh, the, the, fulfill the covenant here, do my half of the covenant. When a reader buys my book, it means they're going to spend money, and then more importantly, they're going to spend time consuming the book. And so that is an investment by them into my art. And so I owe it to them. I have certain things that I owe them in exchange for that. And one of the things I owe them is to ensure that I've taken that initial draft and I've weeded out the redundancies, the, the things that are cliche, the things that are boring, the things that, have, that are only there because they satisfy my whim but actually don't play a role in the story as a whole. So the, re, the editing part for me, a large portion of that is taking things out, getting it leaner and leaner so that it really is around the, the pure economy of the elements that belong in this story and in the language that serves this story. And then everything else gets pushed out to the side, you know. How much of what you just said do you feel can be taught? One of the things that I very much observed was as you were talking about the peas, you spoke about your experience with the peas, and you had a deep sense of trust and conviction about your experience with the peas. Yeah. That your experience would be valid, real enough that you could trust that and put it in your story and that your own personal experience would be part of that. And I would imagine that there's probably a permission that a young writer needs to feel around maybe people are 
they don't feel that their experience is worth writing about or something. But out of what you said, if you're teaching a class at Yale or something, you're going back and you're going to do spring semester, a writing class, how much of what you said do you feel can be taught? And to the extent that it can or can't be taught, how would you structure that class to help your students, the people who were in the shoes now that you were in when you were in school? I am the wrong person to ask this question. Why so, is that? And, and that is because uh, there are many very talented, accomplished writers, even here in the city, who do what you say. <laughs> Meaning that, you know, Michael Cunningham, you know, Pulitzer Prize winner, writing of the hours, he does teach at Yale. Gary Steingart teaches at Columbia. Uh, uh, Jeffrey Eugenides, Pulitzer Prize winner, teaches it at uh, NYU. And so, and they are great American novelists who are also teaching. And so they could tell you, I can't, right? Because I have not actually uh, taught. And so, uh, you know, I, I, could, I could have guesses about what's teachable, what's not teachable, you know. Um, but, I, you know, for me, uh, the most, you know, I don't know, practice is the most important thing, right? So uh, uh, it's about gaining command of elements of craft. Mm -hmm. And teaching can highlight for you uh, how the elements of craft, what the elements of craft are, how they work, how they inter interact. Uh, teaching very valuably gives you a requirement of actually doing work. Like if I look back in my own study, because uh, I did take writing classes at Yale, I did take, uh, you know, I went to a graduate program in writing in Stanford. Um, so you, I was in workshops. And the most valuable thing that comes out of those by far is the fact that you are handing something in. Huh. So it gets you to get things done. Mm -hmm. um, and you begin the process of exposing yourself to how other people talk about your work or analyze your work, which is fine, you know. Um, but but mostly you're, 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 you're learning elements of craft through repetition. And if you think of the elements of craft, and it's a very long list in, in novel, in the writing of novels, but the obvious things of like plot, setting, dialogue, uh, tone of voice, perspective, the more arcane things, whatever, like metaphor or simile or illusion or allegory, uh, you know, these are all elements of craft. And so... Um, the best way to sort of gain command of them is by constantly writing stories where you are making use of these elements of craft. Mm -hmm. Then I would go an added step for me, which is to say that not all writers would, believe, would agree with me on this, and not all, all writers who teach would, but I'm a believer that young writers should write from all kinds of different perspectives. Mm -hmm. So you take on different personalities. You write about different places. You write about different experiences. You, you imagine yourself in the position of someone of a different gender, of a different age, from a different social class, of a different race, from a different country. And you write uh, about some circumstance that they're in. And, and that starts to hone for you um, the ability not simply to command an element of craft, like dialogue, but to do it uh, in a different way for a different person each time. You know, that you're writing, you're doing a setting, you're writing a story about an 80-year-old woman who was, uh, had, parents were very wealthy, married well, but is now relatively, has lower income, living in a big apartment in the Upper East Side, you know, or you're writing about, you know, a kid, uh, you know, from, uh, you know, the east, east side of Chicago, um, you know, who's in a, you know, single pan, parent family or whatever. And they're going to describe a room that they're in 
they would approach describing that setting very differently. So in that sense, there's no, when you gaining command of the craft of setting, it's not like it's a single thing. We're like, oh, this is how you describe a place or a room or an environment. Because that's going to change every time you change the personality and the background of the character. So what becomes valuable as a young person is constantly shifting the ground under your own feet so that you actually get sort of a meta lesson, which is not how to do setting, but how do you start to see the elements of, within setting that can be re-approached in different styles to accomplish the evocation of a different kind of place from a different interior mindset. Right. Yeah. What's coming to mind for me is just the malleability of descriptiveness. We think of yes. things as these things that are they're concrete. This is how it is. It is a physical object. It can't change. And you're challenging that notion. You're saying that the same table by people from all different social classes, they could look at that table and see different things. Absolutely. One person could see a nick in the wood and say, oh, this wouldn't have been good enough for grandma. Another person could say, oh, oh my God goodness and just be flabbergasted by the sight before their eyes. I think that's exactly right. It could strike a memory for them. I, I, my, my uncle had a table like that when, the, you know, when my parents would play poker and I was waiting to go to bed or you know, it would be like that kind of thing. Right? As you say, it can, it can trigger any kind of, of emotion, of a memory, it, and, it, and it's within the landscape of the room. You know, if it doesn't clash, does it stand out? Does it, does it make the room? You know, you're right. So you're, you're, you're sort of going to train yourself in the malleability of description, as you, as you say, uh, is, is, and, and so going back to the question, you know, can various these things be taught? You know, I suppose, sure, you know, and, but most importantly, it's, it's, it's mastering craft through repetition, you know, and, and through constantly approaching things in new ways and then gaining a greater and greater command over what works and what doesn't. Now, tell me about the flip side of this, which is how you consume differently. Yeah. Because this, to me, is the fun part about getting into the game in anything, whether it's I played golf at a high level, learning to paint a bit, learning to write, is once you start doing the thing, you start consuming the thing differently because you start deconstructing what's going on, and all of a sudden you develop a critical eye. What do I like? What don't I like? What do I think is refined? What do I think is sloppy? And all this happens at a very subconscious level. And I know that you've been in this writing group for like 20 years. You're reading over and over again. Reading is group, that, not a writing group. Sorry, a reading group. Thank you. Is that where that consumption happens? You're doing this a lot on your own. What is, how do you consume differently? You certainly hit on an important thing, which I think the vast majority of serious writers of fiction would have a similar story to mine, which is that I began, I became interested in writing when I began to read. Those things happen simultaneously, you know, first grade. And uh, so from that point, you know, what happened was, uh, my first grade teacher, Mrs. Gom, brought to the class a well-known uh, juvenile poet from New England named David McCord, meaning he wrote poetry for the young. And he read his poems to the class. And, uh, and then we were given, you know, copies of his books at the end of class, which he signed. And, you know, we got to bring them home. And, uh, and I just remember being like, this is the coolest thing. This is it. You know, I, I just love this. I love I loved everything about it. I loved that he was writing these poems and the way he used language. I loved that he was reading them to the class and how attentive we were all were. Uh, I loved going into the book. I mean, the whole thing. And that's when I really decided I want to be a writer. And so from that moment forward, reading and writing were things that were happening side by side. You know, where you'd, you'd start to read and get interested in somebody and get deeper and deeper into it. And, and you'd walk away with, with new insights about writing from 
that investigation. And so when you start as a kid, you're reading the Hardy Boys, and you're reading Ray Bradbury, and then you're reading, you know, sci-fi, and you're reading Agatha Christie mysteries, and you know, all these kinds of things, and James Bond, Ian Fleming, and you get into something and sort of take things away from it, as you're saying. But then you kind of shift into high school, where you're reading things of, of greater literary merit, of more intricate construction, and you are absorbing it, as you say, with a critical eye. How does this work? How, why do I love this so much? How, do, you know, how did that just happen? Oh my God, that chapter is amazing. This character is incredible. This language is so so fresh, like surprising. How this person is putting things is really like amazing. I always read with a pen, mm-hmm. and so and then of course you know I studied literature. Yeah, I studied literature at Stanford. So you know you're you're getting the point where you're shifting into an active mode. Not only are you reading with a pen and figuring out how the whole book is constructed, but then you're writing about that, you know, where you're writing essays on, you know, structure in Hemingway or, or you know, whatever, you know, the poetics of Melville or, you know, whatever the various topics are that you're tackling as, as a student. And so the, there's a very thin line between your own approach to writing and, and uh, the way in which you read. You know, they're, they're influencing each other in a, in, a, in a very profound way. And, um, and you get to the point where you do see things out of practice. You start to see things in the structure of the book. You see through the book in a way. And, and you say, oh, okay, I, I, I get how this is structured and, you know, in what he's, what he's doing here, what she's doing here. And, um, and you learn from that, you know. I have written in my notes, what does this mean? I am not this person, exclamation, exclamation point, exclamation point, exclamation point, meaning (laughs) the context there is that you share drafts with very good readers. And I'm like, I am not a very good reader. So what does that mean? What it's referring to is that when I write a a book, I don't share the first draft with anybody until I'm done. And then I give it to a handful of readers. And so, and that includes my editor in New York uh, I may include my editor in London. Uh, I may include my agent, uh, but it'll include three, you know, uh, friends who are good readers. You know, and so they they may be writers, they may be an editor, they may be an a, a literary agent, they may have just studied, they may have a graduate degree in literature, but they're people who read thoughtfully, carefully, and and who therefore will give me thoughtful, careful feedback. You know, people who I trust as a reader, and and that you know those are the people I will turn to. Um, the group that you mentioned which is a separate thing, is 20 years ago, I, uh, three friends and I began a, a book group, in essence. And, and we've been reading novels together for the 20 years. And uh, we read a novel a month, basically, and we do projects where we'll take an author and read you know, three, five, seven of that author's works in a row chronologically, or we'll read uh, a series of books set in the same place or uh, in the, uh, written around the same time by different people or that thematically are interlinked. But we kind of you know, do these projects and do investigations. And then you meet to talk about them. So yes, those are also places where we will at length break down our impressions of uh, the strengths and weaknesses of a particular approach, uh, of a narrative voice, of, you know, elements of style that were surprising to us and that, you, that we admire or that we would love to duplicate or whatever, all that kind of stuff. Who's somebody who comes to mind that you learned a lot from? Oh, I, the whole the whole project has been amazing. I, you know, I, I don't... There were very few wasted efforts in that. But partly because you, you're in control of it. You read the first two by an author, and you're like, ah, not for us. Learned a little something, but it's not our thing. But then some of you are like, three, four, five, six, because you, you're gaining confidence that this is a rewarding person 
uh, to read the work of. And, and so, uh, so you kind of, it self-regulates in that sense, the, that, that you're reading work that is, uh, that rewards you. Yeah. I don't know if you're comfortable sharing the name of an author, but has there been somebody who you learned a lot from who was very rewarding, whose work you didn't particularly like? Well, first of all, we, we almost only, we, we predominantly read dead authors. You know, so I would say that 90% of the authors that we've read are deceased. The reality is that, is that if you think of time or history or whatever you want to call it, history is not very good at capturing all that is great in art. It is not good at that. So there are many great symphonies that have been lost uh, permanently. There are many great painters that died unknown and their paintings are gone. There's novels that have been written that no one will ever read. Uh, so history is not good at capturing all of this great in art. But history is very good at, uh, at discarding all that is mediocre. In huh. art. So, and the amount of time that that takes, it's like something like 50 years. So over the course of 50 years, what will happen is a lot of stuff that was prominent will be refiltered and refiltered and refiltered, and you'll end up with a smaller group of, of things which have survived that test of time. And so like if you think about it right now, if you go back and look at the bestseller list for 1974, 1973, there's a lot of that that would have been highly regarded at the time, which people do not read anymore for a variety of reasons, and there's some that has survived. And, and that's a very telling distinction. Um, so in a world where, where we have, I'm turning 60 uh, this year, you have a limited amount of time. We both have, we all four of us have active lives. We want to make sure that if we're going to sit down, we're going to read carefully, we're going to meet, and we're going to discuss it in detail. We want to make sure that the work is rewarding. And the best way to ensure that is by drawing from the past. Amen. So anyway, so most of them are, are so I, you know, I, uh, there's certainly people where you read and you're like, oh, I would, that's not, I, not my style, but you know, that's very interesting. Right. I, Murakami was not for me, you know, uh, you know, and, and there's people who would adore Murakami and, and people at the table adored Murakami, you know, but he wasn't really for me. And there's things that he was doing that intrigue me and certain things that I'm like, oh, that's pretty cool, but I, I don't know if it suits me, you know? Um, and there's things he was doing where I'm like, I'm not interested in what you're doing with that, you know? So, you know, but, but uh, by the same time, he's, you're like, oh, this is a very accomplished writer. So you're, you're willing to go along for the ride and you try to see and understand what he or she is doing, you know, from their perspective or what they're trying to achieve artistically. Uh, and, and some people can be quite uneven. You know, the um, writers have different approaches to things. If you look at, at Don DeLillo, you know, he's an amazing writer. Uh, you know, and one of the great living American writers, uh, and he is, you know, he's, you know, he's, you know, uh, he is near the end of his life. I don't mean that as a criticism. I, mean, I hate to say that about it, but he's, he's, he's old, right? <laughs> but, but, uh, but if you looked at his career, um, his first three novels were published in three years. And they're super uneven. Mm -hmm. And they're totally unsatisfying in how they end. You know, and you get this sense that he's just moving through them really quickly as he's exploring things that he's doing, you know, and, and figuring out what, it, what is going to be the landscape that he operates in and how's he going to use language and what are the themes that intrigue him. And you work your way towards white noise and you're like, oh, well, that's a masterpiece, you know, and, 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 and Underworld even better, you know. Uh, you know, Philip Roth was a little bit like that for us. You know, we, we, we read uh, Roth's work and, and 
his work just gets stronger and stronger over time. You have novels who go in the opposite direction. You know, I'm, I've mentioned a bunch of guys here. I mean, we read women too. And but but if you look at like Hemingway, I mean, some of his late work is unreadable. It's just terrible. It's amazing he wrote it. Whereas uh, some of his greatest work, he's not 30 years old, right? And so you can have that, but you can have Roth, where he's you know moving along, writing great books and very highly regarded, and suddenly late in life he's writing this series of of longer, increasingly long and complex works. Um, you know, like American pastoral and things like that. So, so within that, within that oeuvre, you may say, you know, this was uneven. This I didn't like at all. But oh my God, over this, over the corpus, this incredible body of work is being developed. And then there's a couple of real masterpieces embedded in here. You know, and he's he or she has evolved over that time frame. How often are you looking at specific sentences? Like I've seen you talk about Calvino's first sentence. Yeah. You are about to begin reading Italo Calvino's new novel. Like yeah. hilarious. Oh, it's, <laughs> it's, one of the hilarious. Greatest, it's the greatest first sentence of all time. <laughs> it's so self-indulgent. It's hilarious. So like when you read something like that, what pops into your brain? Yeah, no, we we I mean our group will definitely do that. I mean We'll talk about themes and the characters and the bigger things more often, but but we will interrupt. So someone will say, wait a second, I just want to, you know, when we're talking about how well the art, the writer writes, you know, somebody will say, and you will all turn to that page and we'll read through the paragraph or whatever and, and admire the way that something is constructed, you know. And I remember in, in the case of Roth in particular, uh, there's sections where, um, and I can't remember which book, but as an example where in a paragraph it will begin from the perspective of one character and then kind of shift into an omniscient version and then it will shift into the mindset of the other character who, who you know, you kind of turn around like this and without it ever breaking and without there being a disruption, it's just this very fluid thing which uh, is very unusual, you know, and, uh, and very skillful. And you're like, oh, that's nice. You know, and so you'll st stop, we'll stop and sort of dwell over how that was achieved. And, um, and then again, you sort of pack that away and say, yeah, that's an interesting thing to, you know, to, to draw out at some point is to think about a shift in don't be married to the, why does it have to be, uh, you know, omniscient third all the way through? What if all of a sudden it's from this other perspective or if most of it's from her perspective, why can't I suddenly have it shift in this scene where we hear from his perspective? You know, you got to be careful you do that because it could be jarring for the reader and the reader may be like, what? You know, but if you pull it off, it's, it's a great, you know, uh, as a great element to the storytelling. Yeah. How, what's your relationship now with poetry? You're talking about learning poetry when you were younger and uh, what, how does that factor into your work? Because there is a poetic element for yeah. sure, but you haven't spoken about it yet. I, you know, and I'm not, a, I am not, a, a, I am a, a reader of poetry, but not a great one. And I have, you know, I've read poetry over the course of my life. I love Whitman. I love Dickinson. Uh, I, I love um, T.S. Eliot. I, you know, I've, there's a variety of poets that I've loved reading. And you do learn a very different thing from them than you learn from reading Joseph Conrad or, uh, you know, or Henry James or Edith Wharton or, you know, Toni Morrison. But, but within the scope of narrative, there are writers who tilt to the poetic. So Toni Morrison actually is an example where some of her work, uh, the sentences are pushing towards poetry. Mm -hmm. And uh, so you're, you don't have to necessarily read poetry in order to master the you know, poetic sensibility. You, know, you can find that in the way that certain novelists write. And, um, and there, there is, I don't you know, where, poet, where prose ends and poetry begins is a very mysterious thing, you know, and, uh, and it's also something that you, that I think in, for me in writing narrative, 
you, you have to kind of dial it in and dial it out. You know, if you wrote in a purely poetic style from beginning to end in the narrative, it could be very difficult for most readers to get into the material because um, poetry can be very demanding in terms of it can mean there are four things at once and you're kind of like saying, wait, where is this happening? And what, what is, wait, is it her or is it him? And is he angry or sad? Or, you, know, you can't quite tell with poetry, you know, and that's part of it. You start to break it down. Well, if you had that feeling over a long period in the course of a novel, it would eventually be like enough. You know, you, you, a novel, kind of the deal with, with a novel is that there is this invitation to let you get settled so you know where you are. And then there's the trying to drag, not, not to fool you, but to lure you in to say, okay, now things are going to get a little bit more out of control or a little bit more poetic or a little bit more dreamlike. And, but stick with me, you know, because I think when you come out the other side of this passage, you're going to be like, yeah, that was worth it, even though I don't fully know yet what it means. But the more I read, I can go back and reflect on that and say, oh, yeah, you know, that feels, it's in harmony with these other events. You know what I mean? So, so there's this sort of, between the prose and the poetic, poetic, you have to, I think, sort of create a balance and, and know when to shift and shift back and uh, in order to, to not drive your reader nuts. Yeah. And then let's go into something a little bit more concrete now and talk about manifestos. I know you like manifestos. Yeah. You've read manifestos. I love the futurist manifesto. I love the energy and almost yeah. the, the sheer braggadocious arrogance of a manifesto. Yeah. It's like, this is the way it is. This is how it needs to be. There's an energy. Even I can feel it in the way I'm speaking. It's like this bodily lion-esque roar that is inside of a manifesto. What sorts of manifestos have you read? Well, I mean, I've read, you know, I kind of collect them in a way. And so I, but, but I, I, I would not, my description of them would not be different than the one you just gave. So <laughs> I do not need to elaborate much on what you just said. And, and I, and I, and my, my love of manifestos began, not surprisingly, as a college student, because that's what manifestos are written for college students. You know? <laughs> I mean, for 19-year-olds, you know, and that's, and that's why revolutions are populated with 19-year-olds, you know, and, uh, and, and they also, also historically, countries where there's a large population of 19-year-olds are at risk of revolution, yeah. you know. Because you know nothing, and yeah, then all yeah, of a sudden somebody yeah. comes in with some super Energy. strong opinion, yes. and now you're like, I know everything, it this just, is the way. Yeah, it turns on every light, it stimulates yeah. every electrical nerve, and but so, but but artistically, I think what was interesting to me about it is reading those first manifestos uh, as, a, as a younger person was, you know, what the Surrealist Manifesto of Breton, or or the the, the Communist Manifesto is amazing, is it's, it's, as you say, it's this assurance um, it's the idea of taking language and, and tying it towards action, you know, that, that this is not, I'm not going to describe something for you. This isn't a parlor game. I'm not trying to satisfy you with some story of a woman having tea. You know, this is about the world right now, and, you know, and, and the way you look at things, and it's wrong, you know, and this is right, and, you know, and, 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 and you know, and you need to look at it that way. And so, as you say, this is great sort of urgency. So the, the lesson, though, to me is, is you, is, as a writer, is, Wow, well, that's a really interesting energy to introduce into language, mm. you know, and 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 the way in which that self assurance can translate into energy is very interesting. And you actually could use that in a domestic novel in different ways, at different moments in time, uh, to your advantage, you know. But it's it's again, it's sort of like going back to the way we began, which is that you're constantly kind of gathering uh, as a writer, I think, different languages that you could use later and we talked about technical languages and 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 you know uh lingos and and slangs well the manifesto is a type of language 
you know, and, and if you look at all the great artistic manifestos and the political ones, they overlap a lot in terms of style. Yeah. You know, they're learning from each other and they, they, uh, so anyway, it, it's its own form of language. What's tactically going on to get that bump, 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 almost that, how does the writing lead to that crescendo where it comes in at the end and goes, like, yeah. what is actually happening technically, yeah. well, you'd grammatically? Have to, you'd have to go scan, you have to go scan at each one. Right. But you're right, it's very staccato. Yeah. You know, and it is. It's, and it's, it doesn't slow itself down. Yeah. It doesn't bog itself down in examples. Um, it's pushing forward at all times to the next idea and the next idea and the next idea. Uh, and it doesn't over-elaborate. You know, so there's like seven declarations, you know, in 14 sentences, you know, whatever that kind of thing. <laughs> but, but, uh, but yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm very fond of that whole category of language. You have this, I think it's your second most popular tweet ever. You know what it is? No, I, I'm, I am not, I am not much of a tweeter and, and, and I don't have much of a following, but go ahead. You, you, you show this Art Nouveau door and oh, you're yeah. like, I want to write that I forget exactly yeah, yeah, what you yeah, said. Yeah, yeah. It's like you show a door, yeah. an Art Nouveau door. You're like, yeah. I want to put that on paper. Yeah, and I have no idea what you mean, and I also know exactly what you mean at the same time. Yeah, I, don't know. I know what you mean. Yeah, no, I, you know, I, I think that that uh, the a part of, of of the life of a writer is is you're constantly listening or looking or and and, and your mind is is moving on from what you're looking at and what you're hearing to um, imagine something beyond it, you know. So, I mean, I was, I was being a little bit of a, a, a tongue-in-cheek there. The, 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 this is this Art Nouveau door, uh, in, incredible intricacy, super elaborate. Um, and it's just, so you just imagine, I don't know, what's behind that door, whatever world is going on behind that door, uh, you know, it's enticing, whatever it is, right? But, uh, but I think more broadly... Uh, you know, you go to a restaurant and you see two people talking and they look very different from each other. And, you know, and they're not, it's not a business meeting. And, you know, and you're like, oh, that's interesting. You know, what, what's going on there? You know, the petite woman of 20 and that 60 year old 300 pound guy in a suit. Like, what is that? You know, is that her uncle? Is that, you know, is that she an intern? Is, you know, you know, what is, is you know, what what is that, you know, is going on in that situation? But but whatever it is, like you're constantly looking at these little things, you know. It, uh, I have um, a collection of short stories, which is coming out in April, called Table for Two. And, and a number, of, and, and there's a novella in, in, in that collection as well. But uh, there's six New York stories in there. And I think almost all of them, maybe five out of six, begin began in real life with seeing a very small thing and being like, oh, well, you know, I wonder what that's all about. Or what if, you know, what if this, you know, a lot about what if into that. And a good example is there's a, there's a story there called The Bootlegger. And it's uh, a guy, a young professional and, uh, and his wife, uh, you know, in their 30s, sort of yuppies, end up at Carnegie Hall, uh, very excited their first time they subscribed to Carnegie Hall. And he's, the husband is a little bit full of himself. And they sit down and he realizes that the old guy in a trench coat sitting in the seat next to him is recording the concert. And, uh, and it starts to drive him crazy. And in the way Carnegie Hall works is that if you subscribe to a series, it means that you have the same seats every time you go to see a, a particular type of performance and whoever's sitting next to you is the same person. Mm -hmm. So he knows that if he comes back, it's going to be, and he, he comes back and it's the same guy recording again. And it, and it, it, totally uh, spoils the concert for him. And eventually he does something about it. Okay, so, uh, and, and goes and speaks to security and all kinds of shit goes, goes you know, goes wrong. 
and uh, both between the old guy, the Carnegie Hall, him, his relationship to his wife, his own feelings, it all kind of gets, you know, out of, it, it, it mushrooms out of control. Is um, that happened to me. I mean, I was with my wife in Carnegie Hall. The guy sitting next to me had the, you know, was, was recording the concert and it, and, it, and it spoiled the concert for me. And like all that is in like the first page of the story in essence. Mm-hmm. But then everything else is what I didn't do. You know, but, but, you know, I, I just remember being there in Carnegie Hall fantasizing, you know, as the, as the concert was being ruined by my, my, you know, awareness of this guy sort of, you know, breaking the law in Carnegie Hall you know, of, of recording and acting like nothing's happening, you know, is that it would, is that I, without listening to the music that I was paying there to hear the music, I was fantasizing about, I'm going to go and tell security, and then this would happen, and this would happen, right. and this would happen. You know? so, so, you know, you have these things. So it goes back to this, as I say. The, the door, in a way, was sort of a cheeky, metaphorical version of the same sort of thing, which is that you take this little moment that you witness, you, it's something that you've happened, or it's an idea that comes to you like the guy trapped in a hotel, and then you kind of go through that door. And you start to imagine, what if this happened? What if this? How about that? How about that? And, you know, in my own work, I've often thought about it as, um, particularly for the bigger projects, is that I I call it, and I I, I guess it's not a coincidence, I call it the opening of doors, which is that if I have an idea for a story, the way it almost happens as I begin to imagine what the story might be, it's as if you walked into a mansion or like whatever, or an elaborate hotel or, what, or whatever. A mansion could be abandoned or it could be, you know, fully running. And all the doors start opening up, you know, where you're like, oh, yeah, there's a room for that and a room for this and a room for that and a room for that. That's the feeling of when a new idea, you, I can tell it's got promise. Is because when I'm like, okay, what happens in this story? And I'm like, oh, this could happen, 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 this could happen. And without even finishing what each any one of those individual ideas are, they're hap- it's they're it's they're they're firing like synapses. It's unfolding. It's unfolding. And then you're like, you take a step back and you say, I don't have to write down any of that necessarily. It's it's more what I now know is that this thing, this thing could be big. Like it, it, it can go in many different directions. It can incorporate many realities. It can have many layers to it. It can have many kind of individuals and events. You know, I can feel the richness, you know, through this, as I say, the feel, the, sort of this physical feeling of all the doors in the building opening up at once. You got to help me with this. What is that hotel on the Upper East Side? It's, I think it's called like the Madeline Room. There's the Jazz Club and it's the hand painted, it's like oh, French. In the Carlisle Hotel? Yes, exactly. Yeah, yeah. The Carlisle Hotel. So, yeah. So oh yeah, because it's it's Madeline is the character. Uh, it's Bemelman's is the bar. Yes, and Bemelman is the is the artist who did the mural and who did the children's book Madeline. There we go. Yeah. Thank you. So, a few comments. So the first thing is it's interesting when I write nonfiction. This is that core moment for so many of my students. It's when they find not the door, but the core thing that they're yeah. saying, the one line or the one paragraph that then they can orbit everything around. Yeah. Once they get that clarity, I just see an explosion in momentum. I remember being on a date at the Carlisle Hotel and they have the they have the the jazz in there and it's sort of going and it's bumping. The drinks are so expensive like I've never seen. But you were talking about that guy at Carnegie Hall And I had the very similar moment. Like if I wrote a short story, this is the story I would tell. There was one of the most beautiful women I have ever seen in my life sitting at the bar. And she was in this like tight black skirt. And I was like, what is going on here? And one of the guys sitting next to me goes, 
hey, uh, I think that's just a prostitute. And right. I was just like, right. that's a prostitute? Like, what is going on here? Yeah. And my whole sense and sensibility of like, what New York was, what was possible in the city, like the levels of society of being in this room and literally entering a world that I not only had never been in, but didn't know existed. Yeah, right. That was one of those yeah. doors for Yeah, me. that's nice. Yeah, Who true. is this woman? What is this club? Why is it the hand-painted walls? Yeah. And that's the door for me. Yeah, yeah. It's very funny. You know? It's a funny thing, man. It's yeah. a funny thing. Let's finish off by just talking about New York. I think that this, as far as a sense of place, um, you have a line where you talk about New York of being this... It just this city of passions, you know, of you go to you go to many cities and they're just L.A. is sort of known as an entertainment city. I live in Austin, Texas, sort of barbecue and technology. But New York is somehow a hub for everything. Yeah. And how does that influence your writing show up in your writing? Uh, and your and your yeah, your description of, of, of what I said is, is, an, is a good one. I, you know, I, I, I really began thinking of that when I wrote Rules of Civility, which is set in New York in the 30s. Um, and, uh, that's where in, in writing that and thinking about that book and about the lives of this characters in the, in the late thirties, this young woman and, and Katie in 1938, it really sort of struck me for the first time that New York is, is, we always talk about it as a melting pot. And what we mean by that is ethnically and as a religious melting pot, an ethnic melting pot and, and, and a melting pot of nationalities. But in a way of, of equal influence in the history of the city is that it is this melting pot of the passions, and by which I mean that um, there are a number, or a large number, of professional pursuits that uh, where New York City is is the, if not if not the capital, then one of its key capitals, and that would be, you know, in journalism, in uh, in cuisine, in dance, in you know, obviously Broadway theater and uh, uh, plays and, and mu musicals, in architecture, in finance, in the law, in uh, advertising. Well, there, this is a, New York City is the capital of, if not the, as you say, if not, one of the two or three or, or the capital of all of those pursuits. And so what that means is that when you have a place where that is the capital of an endeavor, it means that young people every year come to pursue their dream in that endeavor. The young dancers, the young theater performers, the young chefs, the young ad execs, the young people who want to make it on Wall Street, the young models, whatever, they come. And uh, because each of those fields is, draws on a very different kind of person, it means that if you look out at sort of the 25 to 30-year-old culture in New York City, it's people from all these different walks of life pursuing all these different dreams simultaneously in the same place, you know, um, with the same sort of ultimate hopes. And I, I think it adds this incredibly strange texture uh, and a very exciting texture to New York City. And um, so it makes it, it makes it great fun. And, I, you know, Rules of Civility is very much is, is about that. Actually, that is a case where... Uh, we're in the St. Regis Hotel right now, and uh, the King Cole Bar, in, which is the bar in the, the, with the, the, the mural in this hotel, um, it play, is a uh, key scene in, in Rules of Civility, you know, and, um, because of, it has that vibe of what you're describing at the Carlisle, same kind of vibe in terms of people, young people there, and it's kind of tourists, but also you know, rich locals and finance guys and all kind of you know, the model all kind of piled in there, and uh, you sort of get the sense of the electric, electricity of the city, and that the the the, man, uh, 
Maxwell Parrish is the, the muralist uh, behind the bar of Old King Cole. You know, that's been there for 100 years, right? And you think about that, like that, that, that the idea that, that the room just keeps changing. I mean, the, the room doesn't change, excuse me, the people, right? You know, like musical chairs, you're constantly, decade after decade, have a new group who's coming in and sitting behind the same bar and looking at the same mural with the same intentions. Like that's, you know, an amazing thing uh, to, you know, even to consider. Um, you know, and Lincoln Highway is, is, has a portion of itself in New York City. And it was sort of fun, kind of fun to kind of begins in, in, uh, in the Midwest, comes through New York, and then, you know, ends up in the Adirondacks. Um, and as I say, half, most of the short stories in, in the new collection are set in New York. So New York is, it's not the only thing I write about, but it is fun stomping ground for sure. Hey, thank you so much for My doing pleasure. this. My pleasure. This is so fun. Much, David. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Yeah.